Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of New Books and Popular Music. I'm your host, Greg Renoff, and today is my pleasure to have Steve Waxman, who is an associate professor of music at Smith College, to come and talk about his book, It Ain't the Summer of Love, Conflict and Crossover in Heavy Metal and Punk, which was published by the University of California Press in 2009. As the subtitle suggests, this is a book about the interplay between heavy metal and punk, and uh, this is a topic that I thought I knew quite a bit about, uh, having lived through the 1980s as a teenager who was a huge fan of heavy metal, um, had a lot of friends who loved punk rock and really were not particularly um, huge fans of heavy metal. And yet by the time the 1980s came to a close, it seemed those two musical genres had merged. Um, so Steve's book served as a great basis for a very enjoyable conversation about his really excellent book. And uh, Steve's book offers a wholly different genealogy of the relationship between heavy metal and punk than the one I thought I understood and knew to be fact. So I will step out of the way here and get us to the conversation. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Absolutely. Pleasure to do it. Thank you so much. Um, maybe we could start off. You could tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and then how you came to write this book. Yeah, sure. Well, I uh, am a product of the Southern California suburbs. I was born and raised in Simi Valley, California. And from an early age, music became one of the things that was most readily available as a way to cope with the sort of boredom and ennui of growing up in the suburbs, um, you know, we were a good ways outside of Los Angeles proper. And so while I had a certain measure of access to the LA music scene after a time, most of my access was through, uh, buying records, listening to music, listening to the radio. There were some great radio stations that played a good bit of hard rock. And I had some kids in my neighborhood who were a bit older than me who were into music and who were playing music themselves. Uh, and through the influences I was soaking up, uh, and I think just by virtue of the fact that living in Southern California, growing up in the late 70s and early 80s, this was bound to happen, uh, metal and punk were both very much prominent mm -hmm. uh, resources of music that I gravitated to and music that re I responded to, you know, almost in a way where it was like, wow, why did that take hold so strongly? Mm -hmm. So the first album I ever bought of my own accord, really, uh, with some money I made from a garage sale was Kiss Alive, mm -hmm. which bought in 1976 when it was newly released. I was, I think, eight years old. And I was, I, my mom took me to Gemco, some big old school department store of the 70s. And they had a record section and Kiss Alive was on display there. And I was like, I want that. I don't even know how I knew what the music was. I might have I, th I think I heard Kiss maybe on a TV ad or something like right. that because I wasn't even really listening to the radio much. But definitely their visual appeal had much to do with my wanting that album. I mean, the album cover was just like, wow, you know, looked like some monster movie made mm -hmm. come to life. I was into monster movies. I was starting to get into rock and roll and 
you know, Kiss was like a big home run for me. Um, and from there, I started playing guitar around within a year or so of that at age nine. Uh, took lessons, bought my first electric guitar from one of the guys older than me down the street. And, you know, it took a while to get anywhere near good at it, but definitely took to it very haltingly, but eventually it became a pretty major part of my teen years and continues to be a pretty big part of what I do today. And as I started developing my guitar skills, once again, hard rock, metal, that was the stuff I was most drawn to. So the first stuff I was learning to play was Black Sabbath and ACT mm-hmm. and Def Leppard and Iron Maiden. Uh, and eventually I was able to teach myself how to play that stuff by listening by ear. And I definitely, you know, being a guitarist who was into metal means meant at that time being into technique and trying to play fast. And at the same time, I was starting to slowly absorb some uh, influence of punk by the time I got into, like, my early teens. And that, I think, largely came, again, from, like, kids in my neighborhood, but also from uh, reading the L.A. Times, of all things, which used to review a pretty decent range of local music, including bands like X and Black Flag, right. X the real critical darling at the time. And so the, I think the first album I ever bought that could be considered a punk album was probably X's Under the Big Black Sun. Mm-hmm. Uh, Produced by Ray Manzarek. And exactly. Recently passed away. Passed, yeah, R.I.P. Um And I definitely felt when I started getting a little more into punk that being into metal and being into punk were sort of contradictory. Mm -hmm. And that had everything to do with the people I knew who listened to one genre as opposed to the other. You know, and I was always somebody who, in terms of appearance and style, looked a lot more like a metalhead with maybe some hippie overtones. (laughs) Always had longer hair or at least wanted to have longer hair. My parents didn't always let me, but I aspired to it. I started wearing metal t-shirts to school around age 15 or 16. And I hung out probably a little more with metal guys than with punk guys, but it really was like not as much a part of my social scene. It was more just what I was into listening to. Um, And eventually, by the time I graduated high school, bands like the Minutemen and Husker Du were as important to me as Iron Maiden, I would say. Right. Um, And when I got to college at UC Berkeley, that became even more the case, that I started meeting more people who were really into punk. And being a college student at UC Berkeley in the 1980s, metal was not really a thing that you were supposed to be into so much. (laughs) I I did go to see David Lee Roth my very first semester in college, and I saw Motorhead and some other good shows at that time. But I definitely started veering more in a punk direction than a metal direction. And – but – At the same time, I never fully gave up one for the other. And I think it was that sense that I was into these things, that there was a sort of tension between them. But I always felt like there was also a certain amount of complementarity between metal and punk. Mm -hmm. And as I got older, I started to sort of revisit that in a whole different way as I started reclaiming some of my (laughs) metalness again as I approached middle age. And, And I think that's really what gave rise to my wanting to write the book that I did. Yeah, I mean, that the thing I really, there's a lot of things I'm going to say about the book that I really enjoyed. But one of the things, of course, is you know that you're getting older. I'm 43. Is that when you start to read a really well-written history that you actually lived and you're like, oh, yeah, this is actually pretty on, on target. Yeah, this was my experience as well, living 
across the country um, in New Jersey as, as a teenager. Um, but maybe we could start off by um, familiarizing our listeners with your conceptions of metal and punk. And I thought the way that you sort of sketched it out as a, a fluid relationship rather than the either or ideologies that I think was a lot of times the way it was experienced by me in some senses as a kid. Um, and then what you mean by crossover might really help people kind of get into the the meat of the book. Sure. It's, I mean, I, I was, Oh wow. I'm stumbling now. Um, definitions are always tricky, right? Genre, right. When you're talking about metal and punk, you're talking about genre. And I think one thing I'd say at the outset is in general, I think that music genres or any kinds of genres are, are pretty fluid things. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we use them because it's good to have a way to define things and have categories, and it helps us, you know, figure out what we're going to hear when we come to a certain piece of music or right. a certain film or something. But I think the, the closer you look at any genre, the more it seems pretty amorphous in its definition. There are always things that are exceptions to the rules. Right. Um, you know, so to say, like, how is metal different from punk? Well, to me, there are some basic things. Uh, I guess I mentioned in my little, you know, bio, auto bio narrative that being a guitarist, one of the things I was always very aware of was that being into metal and being a guitarist meant you had a certain amount of concern for good technique, right? whatever that meant. Now, right. what that meant for me in the early 80s was playing fast. And not just playing fast, but playing fast using certain kinds of scales that sometimes were evocative of like classical music influence, right. which bespoke a sort of musical sophistication um, that was different, say, from like what a Jimi Hendrix virtuoso type guitarist would be playing. Right. Um, and punk never had that same infatuation with technique. In fact, just the opposite. So to me, this is one of the real fault lines between metal and punk is that punk was more a sort of DIY. If you can pick up an instrument and plug it in, you should be able to join a band kind right. of thing. Uh, you know, if you believe that true musicianship equals highly polished virtuosity, then that DIY idea about what it means to be a musician doesn't really hold. Right. So that for me was always a real difference, you know? So like listening to a band like black flag, where you've got a guy like Greg Ginn playing. And Greg Ginn's such a complicated case because he actually, I think, is a kind of virtuoso, but he sure doesn't play pretty little diminished chord mm -hmm. scales or whatever. He's, like, playing as wildly dissonant as any free jazz guitarist. Right. And that, like, breaks the rules in all kinds of ways. But it was definitely a very different idea of what being a powerful, good musician was than what you heard in Van Halen. Right. And so in developing my ideas for the book, one of the things that I was trying to put forth is like, well, you can see this as an either or, you know, so like you've got highly crafted virtuosic technique on one side and repudiation of highly crafted virtuosic technique on the other side. But then there's a lot of middle ground. And to me, mm -hmm. someone like Greg Ginn is middle ground, right? Because he's still playing ridiculous guitar solos. He's not disowning the notion that guitar solos are cool and awesome. He's just doing it differently. Right. He's doing it with a sensibility and an aesthetic that I think is informed by punk, but it's not limited by punk. Right. And it's also kind of informed by metal because there's a lot of Black Sabbath influence and there's mm -hmm. a lot of other kinds of 
rock influences that aren't just straight up punk. That's where crossover comes into the picture. And so I think by the time you get these punk bands who, in one way or another, are morphing away from, like, say, the Ramones model of punk, you start to get a much more hybrid kind of formation where metal and punk, I think, are having a lot more to do with one another musically, as well as to some degree, you know, socially, subculturally, however you want to put that. Uh, yeah, I mean, the thing I would say right off the bat is that what, what, what struck me when you were saying that is, um, if nothing else, you mentioned that I, I when you were growing up, you, you wanted to grow your hair long. And of course, that's part to me of what made someone really into metal was that they had really long hair. You know, like if you saw the kid in the neighborhood who had the hair down past his his shoulders, you know, you knew that person had made the commitment to grow your hair. And sort of with punk, the idea that you, know, you just shave your head and you, you can be into punk, it, it gets back to like all of those things you were saying about the um, about the differences and, of course, the fluidity. And I think that's what was really, to me, most appealing about this book and why I'd urge anyone who has any interest in punk or metal or history um, to read this book because it really gets to, I think, what is the essence of what these two musical forms are and what their relationship really is, that it's never been completely clear-cut. And your book does a brilliant job of showing that, is that as much as you want to sort of put this band into this box, it's it's sort of, it's difficult when you really start to look at a granular level because it's those assumptions and those, those certainties, I, I think, fall apart. Um, but that leads me to ask you about a band that I was actually pleased that you, you started the book with. I, I originally read this book back in 2010, I think, when it had just been out for a short period of time. But yeah. um, Grand Funk, which uh, mm-hmm. for, um, for I think for a lot of people who are 20 years younger than us, the only thing they know about Grand Funk is I'm your captain or we're an American band. They have no idea how big Grand Funk was. And yet, as you point out, and I think it's really it was interesting, and I'm sort of still wrestling with this, is that Grand Funk was in many ways representative of this juncture between what you call early metal and early punk. Yeah. You know, Grand Funk is one of those bands that on some level predates both metal and punk as things that people recognize as genres. And so to me, they're like of an odd but revealing choice to retell some kind of origin story. And this came home to me recently. I was at a conference on metal. There was this great metal studies conference at Bowling Green State University in Ohio uh, just about a month ago. And I was on a panel on the origins of metal. I was there with some other really great metal writers. Dina Weinstein Mm -hmm. was there on my panel and Martin Popoff, who's done a lot of great journalistic work compiling, you know, discographies of metal featuring albums that, you know, I've never heard of. Right. Stuff like that. Um, and a big part of my presentation there was trying to make briefly the case for why Grand Funk should be thought of as part of the origin or the history of metal at its early phase. And there was a lot of resistance. I'm sure. Still. And I think, you know, Grand Funk is one of those bands you listen to now and you're like, it's really hard to figure out where they fit or how to categorize them. But to me, that's why it's really important to be a historian and to actually pay attention to how things were talked about when they were around as opposed to how we tend to hear them now. You know, I think if you were to just play Grand Funk for the average listener now and were to say, hey, what do you think? Is this metal? They'd probably say, uh, I don't know. And yet in the 70s, in the early 70s, like 71, 72, when Grand Funk was at it, the height of its popularity, 
the band that they were most routinely compared with was Black Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Which nobody questions that Black Sabbath is a metal band. Right. I mean, that's like the band above all. Like, if there is a metal band that defines metal, it's Sabbath. So, okay, if Grand Funk and Black Sabbath were talked about as though they were in the same breath, that seems to suggest to me that there's reason to think that Grand Funk might also warrant being called at least a proto-metal band. Right. Uh, but at the same time, what makes Grand Funk such an interesting case for me is because they, I think, foreshadowed the kind of sonic power that became a defining feature of metal. I mean, you know, getting back to definition, one thing that defines metal is this sense that it's louder than loud. Mm-hmm. It's going to blow your ears out. It's going to envelop you in sound and sound of a very particular sort, thundering, echoey drums and walls of guitar distortion uh, and a deep lumbering bass all layered on top of one another to create that wall of metal sound that is what people who love the genre love best. Um, And so Grand Funk, I think, was a prototype for that kind of thing. They maybe didn't always achieve it the way that we think metal should sound, but it was at least there. Yep. but they were also this sort of weird embodiment of a sort of populist DIY ethos. Like oh, critics who hated the band and most critics hated them went on and on about how these guys couldn't play for anything. And so there was this sense that Grand Funk, even though they were like selling out arenas and were this band that was like massively popular on a ridiculous scale, they were also like a people's band. Right. And to me, there's something kind of punk about that. Right. Uh, now, metal's also been kind of a people's band, and that's where, to me, one of the most interesting points of contact between punk and metal comes into play. Is like, what does it mean to call a band a people's band, or to say that a band has a sort of democratic spirit behind it? You know, is is gathering fifty thousand people together a more or less democratic kind of phenomenon than gathering twenty people together in a little crap club? who all have the same haircut and who all subscribe to the same basic ethos. Right. And to me, that's one of the biggest sort of, if you want to call it political questions that comes out of thinking about the relationship between heavy metal and punk. And for me, grand funk typifies some of the implications of that. You know, they were the band that drew the biggest crowds of their time and nobody could quite figure out why. (laughs) So it became a kind of, question and it became a really interesting question that critics were throwing around for about two years in the early 70s yeah there's um many things i could say about grand funk i mean one of which is that it may or may not surprise you that and you know this i'm sure is that the van halen brothers were obsessed with grand funk when 1970 71 i mean that was their kind of their once they graduated beyond cream they went on to grand funk and black sabbath and that was their what they learned um and of course i don't think there's any doubt that you know van halen's debut album is a, a metal classic and sort of have them that be the part of the grist for their mill kind of i think speaks to what you've also been getting at here but um you know in what you're, you were mentioning about the audience and the populism i thought your chapter on um the, now the name of course of uh, iggy pop and alice cooper was right on target for this and talking about the different ways they manipulated the audience and uh, surely that both of these men are um still performing today, but I, I dare say that Iggy Pop of 1971, 72, 73 is very different than the Iggy Pop of today, and certainly the same for Alice Cooper. Do you want to speak a little bit about your your thoughts on those two icons? Yeah, I, 
again, like I think to me back in the early seventies, you know, they were compelling as performers unto themselves, but they're also compelling like grand funk because of the way they were being talked about. And, you know, as grand funk and black Sabbath were always being talked about in the same breath or often being talked about in the same breath, same with Iggy and Alice. And for obvious reasons, I mean, on the one hand, you've got this guy who stages his execution on stage every night, but in this way, that's really clearly fabricated and played as much for laughs as for horror. That's Alice Cooper, right? And on the other hand, you've got Iggy, who just goes out there and seems to want to beat the hell out of himself every night. Right. Uh, so he's not necessarily, like, staging his execution, but he's he's almost, like, offering himself up for sacrifice. Right. And I think that both of those figures are playing upon this idea of, you know, so when an audience is watching a kind of spectacle of what rock concerts were becoming... Early, early 70s, what do they want? Uh, what what kind of entertainment are they most drawn to or are they most, like, yearning for? And Alice Cooper, you know, as much as he had this sort of cartoonish quality about him, he was incredibly articulate and incredibly honest on some level about saying, like, there's nothing authentic about what I'm doing at all. I'm not trying to put myself out there as this leader of the new generation. I'm out there trying to entertain young kids who are often 14 or 15 years old. Young kids like to be scared, and that's why I try to scare them. But he also made it plain that in his mind, there was also a certain element of control at issue. Like He saw himself, the more he went out on a limb, the more he felt like he ultimately had control over his audience. And for him, that was all to the good. But he liked to sort of push it to that limit where maybe the audience itself might get out of control, you know. So it's not just like, okay, now I'm going to sit in my electric chair and get electrocuted. But it's crazy stuff like I'm going to throw dollar bills at the audience, right? you know. It's like, so what do you want? If you're here to be entertained, okay, I'm going to give you money. And it totally inverts the whole dynamic of what's going on because suddenly Alice is up there throwing money and all these people in the audience are like fighting over it. It's almost like an early mosh pit, <laughs> except that people aren't just moshing for moshing's sake. They're fighting with each other to right. get a dollar bill. Right. It's kind of brilliant um, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's, it is a sort of taking what the audience's deepest desires might be and turning them on their head. You know, and Iggy was, I think, doing a different version of that. It's like you want to see a, a performer put himself out on his farthest limit. Well, look at me and I'm going to like cut my chest open. Right. Um, and I think to my mind, what's so resonant about both of those figures thinking again, like thinking as a historian, like I think there was something that people were trying to grapple with about like, so what does this mean now that we have shows that are like 10,000 people at a pop on a regular basis? It was a new, so it was a relatively new kind of thing for that to be happening so routinely, at least in the context of rock and roll. I mean, there had been big rock concerts of a sort in the 50s, but it hadn't become as standardized as it became in the 70s. The 70s was the era when arena rock really took, right? And so I think these guys are sort of playing on a precipice where artists and audiences both are having to figure out like, okay, now that there's 12,000 people in a room and it's the artist's audience, it's the artist's job to entertain all these people, what are we supposed to do? And part of the answer was, 
let's get more extreme. Right. You know, and I think that's one way to make sense of metal and punk is it's like this these different ways of making musical and performance statements more extreme right. you know, in order to draw the audience in, in order to create a sense of immediacy that might otherwise be lost from the fact that there's now 12,000 people sitting in a room watching this thing all at the same time. Right. I, and, you know, one of the, that brings me to something I really wanted to um, bring forth in this conversation is that I, I wrote a book on traveling circuses mm. and, um, University of Georgia Press, and one of the things that came out of my research was that there was this whole body of thought that people who went to see big top shows, so when the show circuses got bigger in the late 19th century, people sort of became less interactive, right? They became passive. Right. And that's one of the things that quickly, it, part of my own uh, experience growing up going to Arena Rock shows, I was very dubious of that idea. And then when you start to read newspaper accounts about fights and all these other things that go on, these you know people stepping into the ring, all these things that would occasionally happen um, inside and outside a huge tent, I mean, to me, sort of presaged what comes later with Arena Rock, which is that, you know, as you're pointing out, you know, the dollar bills goes, go in the audience. The people don't sit there. I mean, there's a, there is this effort by audience members to participate, whether that be in the 1970s, the big thing was to bring fireworks, right? To bring this huge cherry right. bomb and throw it at Led Zeppelin or throw a sh your shoe at Jimmy Page. It's not because you don't like Jimmy Page. I think people wanted to sort of to participate. And later on, that becomes stage diving, stage diving. We go through all the other things, but... That, to me, is, again, one of the, the real brilliant insights of your book as you bring this to the fore. Yeah, and I think that's really crucial. And, and I think you're absolutely right. Audiences want to have that sense of connection. And so, you know, for those mass culture critics who, you know, from the 19th century forward have been claiming that audiences are just being pacified, I think in both metal and punk you find evidence to the contrary. Right. And to me, that's actually an important thing to recognize because I think in the way that the sort of criticism and the discourses around metal and punk have taken shape, punk has always been seen as that thing that was trying to reawaken participation. Right. But metal was not. Metal was seen as the opposite. Metal was seen as precisely that thing that was pacifying people. And I don't think it was doing that at all. I think that you look at the examples of these bands – as the genre was coming up in its early stages, and you see precisely that there are these performers who are trying to draw the audience out, right. are not just trying to turn them into passive creatures, but are actually trying to say, all right, people out there, wake the hell up. Right. So I think that's crucial. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And the uh, I, I just yeah, I just think that other school of thought is really missing something um and i'll just leave it at that um which brings me to to gender i would think we would not be doing service to this discussion if we didn't talk about gender and if you, you um talk about the now i think legendary girl band the runaways and um some really interesting stuff going on in there not just with metal and punk and crossover but with gender and the way these girls were presented you want to speak a little about that sure yeah i mean it is interesting i you know, I can't say I rode the one runaways wave, <laughs> but it does seem like there's been a bit of a runaways wave over the last few years. Certainly the movie was the best evidence of that, which I thought was better than expected. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, the runaways, up, up until I started really researching them closely, they'd always been a bit of a mystery to me. You know, growing up, I would see their albums sitting in the store and I was sort of intrigued by them, but I couldn't, I didn't have any context for them. Right. And they weren't getting played on the radio. 
and none of the people I knew were listening to them. And so I just, they were just like this band that sort of lodged itself in my head, in my head as a question mark. And at the same time, I was very curious, like, why does this all-female band never get any credit? You know, when you would read women in rock things, they talk about other bands like Fanny from the early 70s, who wasn't a metal or punk band at all, but they were a pretty solid hard rock band. Um, You know, Bonnie Ray, other performers like that, Pretenders. And then the Runaways were always like a punchline. And I didn't get it. I didn't understand why that was so clearly the case and what gave so many of these other figures the credibility that they were seen to have. And so I really went into researching the Runaways, just being really curious, like, what's the deal with this band? Why have they been dismissed so thoroughly? Um, Clearly, their age had a lot to do with it. They were mid-teens young girls when the band was formed. Um, Now, of course, there are a lot of instances where actual teens playing rock and roll is precisely what excites people. But in their case, the fact that they were girls and it was the seventies and second wave feminism had not exactly taken root very strongly in rock criticism. Uh, but at the same time, you know, they seem to a lot of people like a manufactured band, right? right? They're, uh, androgynously named, but, but distinctly male manager, Kim Fowley, uh, on some level, put the band together, although I think the story is actually more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they seem to smack of a sort of era of manufactured pop that didn't, again, have the sort of ring of authenticity, especially in connection with things like punk, uh, but even in connection with things like metal. And, you know, so you had Lita Ford, who I think is a pretty great guitar player, but Maybe you listen to Lita Ford on the first Runaways album and you compare her to Richie Blackmore and she suffers by comparison. So then just say this is a pale imitation of what male hard rockers are trying to do. And for me, it's actually a pretty damn interesting effort by a group of young teenage women, girls, to approximate precisely what male hard rockers are doing. Uh, There hadn't been a whole hell of a lot of other examples of young women doing that in any kind of well-publicized way. I think a lot of people saw it as a gimmick. Uh, But reading through as much of the material that was published around the Runaways and the interviews with them that they've done over the years and at the time, I think it's pretty clear that whatever the other motivations were behind the band members and the folks who were managing them, their interest in and love for rock and roll and their ambitions around it were absolutely genuine. Uh, You know, Cherie Curry in her autobiography tells great stories about how she was just a complete and utter Bowie acolyte. Right. Up in the early seventies and she would go to school dressed up like Bowie. Um, And, you know, it made her a total outcast, but she was absolutely dedicated to her own little rock and roll fantasy, as was Joan Jett, who was, equally infatuated with Susie Quattro. Right. Um, you know, it was British glam. I, this to me, I don't even get into this as much as I might have in the book, but this to me is one of the most interesting things about the Runaways is that glam rock, you know, which was so much about male rockers assuming these androgynous poses, but there really weren't that many female glam rockers. So it wasn't like this completely gender-inclusive sort of phenomenon But I think it's really telling that it was glam rock that so motivated many of the members of the Runaways to want to play rock and roll, and I think also to feel like they could. 
Right. And the thing you, you do such a, a nice job of showing in the book, too, is, of course, there was this split right down the middle where you sort of eventually where you had, you know, Joan Jett and Lita Ford on opposite sides of the fence there in terms of their interests, Lita Ford being more interested in metal, Joan Jett being more interested in punk. And, of course, as you point out, ex- exactly that uh, Cherie Curry is, you know, looked like David Bowie. I mean, she clearly was influenced by uh, Bowie's look. And to have all that mixed together, I mean, those are with the Susie Quattro factor. It's a pretty nice set of influences. And I think, um, you know, I don't, I think that you're right is that the, um, the gimmick sort of backfired, I think, long term, certainly by, by the 1980s, you weren't going to hear Cherry Bomb on the radio, which I actually think is a great song that has held up very well. Um, yeah, but but it doesn't you didn't get played and I'm not sure why but maybe you're getting at it with that with the um, with the gimmickry aspect that it just was seen as sort of contrived like a like a boy band put together for the 1990s market. Yeah, I do think there was that sense. I mean, it also evokes the girl groups of the earlier era, right? right? Like the early 60s. I think is an obvious comparison. Um, and for years, in the way that rock history was written, the girl groups were basically dismissed out of hand as like manufactured pop fluff. It was the moment when rock lost its edge, right? You went from Elvis to the Shirelles. Uh, now, again, with girl group music in the last decade or more, that stuff's been completely subject to reevaluation. And now the girl group era is looked at as being a sort of, you know, overlooked high point of early rock and roll. Right. Um, I don't know that anyone's going to say quite the same thing about the runaways. Right. But at the same time, I think when you look at when they emerged at who their contemporaries were, I mean, you know, again, doing basic research opens your eyes to so many things. You cream magazine in 1976, uh, has this big headline in their album reviews section, something like punk rock returns. You know, and I mean, there's so much going on with that because, on the one hand, it's like it's 1976. <laughs> right. You're saying punk rock returns. What right. the hell are you talking about? But it's because in Cream Magazine in 1972, punk rock was like garage rock from the 60s. Right. So this was like punk rock Mach two already. And who are the bands that re- signal the return of punk rock? It's the Ramones, Jonathan Richmond, and the Runaways. Like they're right there, and there's no ambivalence at that point at all by, I think it's Robot Hull, who writes about their band, about their first album in that record review, he's he's all on board. Runaways are like the new wave of punk rock. Right. They are it. So they actually did get some credit in their day. And I think they're, at the same time, there was just this inescapable sense that a lot of people had that there was something that wasn't quite right about the band that I think got, came down to the way in which they seemed to be manufactured and they seemed to be catering to certain types of male fantasies right. that were unseemly. That right. had everything to do with the fact that they were a bunch of 16 and 17 and eventually 18 and 19 year old young women. Um, there was definitely a Lolita factor. There's no question about that. And I mean, I think Cherie Curry played it up as much as anything. Um, and, you know, in the book, I include this photo of her posing in her lingerie, and right. that was hardly unusual. She would go on stage and sing Cherry Bomb in a negligee. Right. Uh, and that was, you know, that was part of the band's way of kind of playing to the crowd, right? Alice Cooper throws money and kills himself on stage. Sherry Curry, Sherry Curry goes on stage in a negligee and sings Cherry Bomb. Right. I don't think that one's any better or any worse than the other. Uh, um, but... You know, for those for whom second wave feminism, for instance, actually did matter, 
that was not an acceptable way for a female artist to try to get attention. Right. So I think that really played to the band's disadvantage. Right. That they seemed like they were not just trying to play rock and roll like guys, but they were actually playing by guys' rules. And, and uh, that too, right? That gets to exactly this um, experience that I had, which was that, you know, growing up, of course, you know, Joan Jett, kind of went in the 80s she sort of she played down her looks in some ways and she was always kind of a cute girl whatever you wanted to say about her but she didn't do the lead a ford full-blown i'm gonna really trade on my sexuality in a way that helps me garner a market and of course you, you point out sherry curry does this as well and if you want to leap ahead and we can circle back um to the 80s again but ha- i'm really curious your thoughts on how how does that play out in the 90s when grunge rock and you have these groups like l7 and you have whole this idea that women sort of using their looks or whatever you want to say, the sort of the, um, no, the Lolita factor, however you want to put it, trading on their sexuality for market share, for lack of a better way of expressing it. Well, I don't know how much market share was involved with most of the 90s bands that were attached specifically with those movements. I mean, Hole was probably the biggest of those bands commercially, and even at that, like, they weren't Nirvana, right? Uh, And But I think, you know, connecting that to Riot Girl, which is even less squarely commercial, but to me, what a lot of the female artists of that time were doing, and this I think especially is true of Riot Girl and also applies to Courtney Love, at least for a time, is that they were really redefining in a lot of ways what sexuality meant in the context of popular music. Right. So it wasn't about just a sheer matter of objectifying yourself. You know, Kathleen Hanna of Bikini Kill might have shown her boob in a context of a performance, but she would also have body paint on that said things like rapist. And there were things that were trying to draw attention to the connection between sexuality and sex and power right. and gender in ways that were so much more explicit right. than the runaways I think were capable of being able to articulate. Um, and it also, I mean, there were some punk bands who I think verged on, that sort of explicit engagement with gender and sexuality in a sort of social critique in the seventies. But the, the, t- it, it was, it was a harder thing to articulate, I think in that context. Um, you know, you had British punk bands wearing bondage gear and there was definitely an aspect of that, that was meant to draw attention to the fact that sex and power were two sides of the same coin. Uh, but to me, what Riot Girl was trying to do in that regard was so much more advanced. You know, it was still there was still so certain basic naivete to a lot of it, but that, in some sense, was also what gave it its power. That it was still very much young women who were trying to use their own bodies as a medium for precisely drawing attention to the way that young women's bodies are made subject to processes of being consumed. Um, and I, I think that. You, you know, and then you get these themes of sexual violence coming into play. Right. Um, there was just there was a much more complicated discourse around it. I think when you get into the nineties, right. and that doesn't mean that there weren't also artists like, um, well, I mean, you, you know, you mentioned Lita Ford. I mean, it's really in the late eighties, early nineties that Lita goes through her most sort of, you know, uh, objectifying right. period of her own career. Right. Uh, you know, even Liz Fair. Right, she's definitely more in the indie rock world. She, I think, has a lot of the more critical sensibility around sex and sexuality 
but she's also definitely seeming to be using it to draw attention to herself. Right. Um, so it's not like the women of the 90s were completely able to escape the kind of carnivorous tendencies <laughs> of popular culture right. where the exploitation of women's bodies were concerned. But I think they made it into the subject of what they were doing in a way that was almost unprecedented. Right. And, and uh, the, the example that's coming to mind, and I'm not sure if it was Courtney Love or someone else, you know, takes her tampon out on stage and throws it in the crowd. I mean, you never would have seen Lita Ford. I think Ford that was actually one of the members of L7. There you go. There you go. Yeah. That's, that's um, right. And, uh, you know, that's the type of thing that I think is, is exactly squared up with what you're, what you're saying. I mean, there was just, there's these different ways of approaching all of those themes and issues and concerns. And, uh, yeah, that was definitely not going to be something that you were going to see, uh, yeah, Lita Ford do in 1989 at the, at the uh, Long Beach arena. Probably not. Um, what about, let's, let's speak about Motorhead. Um, my, my, one of my first memories of the band Motorhead is I had a friend who moved to my high school in New Jersey and he brought, his motorhead double vinyl over and it had this sort of faux leather cover on it. And I was just like, no remorse. Yeah. It was, yeah. And I was very, very impressed with that. And he put it on and it was so different than the type of music I had been listening to, which was much more of the, the more commercial MTV style heavy metal. Um, and uh, maybe uh, appropriately, we just had a big blast of thunder here in Tulsa. So now maybe we're, we'll speak about motorhead, but um, <laughs> you, uh, you, you, I think if I remember correctly in the book, I mean, you, you say that that's actually the first time that a band was ever actually called crossover in, in the press that you were able to find. Is that is that right? Yeah, pretty much. Um, and it doesn't really start to take hold in that regard, I'd say, until like 79 uh, is when I, if I if I remember correctly. Uh, that's the first time you really start to see the phrase crossover start to pop up. Right. And it's definitely in connection with Motorhead. Um, and, you know, so. I, there was one, like, you know, every every author has to deal with both good and bad reviews. And so there was one sort of snarky review that I saw that popped up on a uh, heavy metal blog website of my book. And he said, you know, saying that Motorhead was the first metal punk crossover band is kind of like saying the sky is blue. Um, you know, it's like, we all know this. We don't need to be told this. Right. Uh, you know, and it, I feel like at the same time, a, nobody I had seen had ever really documented this, right? So it's like, okay, sure, Motorhead, Metal Punk Crossover, no-brainer, duh. But being able to actually see that there was an actual move that happened in the late 70s and early 80s that started to describe this thing called Crossover, to me, that tells us something. Right, absolutely. You know, it tells us that people are starting to think about these genres in relation to each other in a way that's pretty pronounced and that's sort of new. Uh, and it, on that level, it's like, so why Motorhead? And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that Motorhead itself, themselves, whatever you want to say, um, was a band that was very much positioned as in-between. You know, they sounded kind of in-between. They, again, they had, to me, a sort of classic crossover combination. They were as loud and overwhelming in the sound that they generated as any metal band. But they also had a sort of, disdain for well-honed technique right. that was akin to what you got from a lot of punk bands. And the fact that they played shows with the Damned, that the Lemmy was like even played, I think, on a Damned record, and um, that they were simpatico with people in the punk scene, that they released albums on indie record labels. Right. Um, all of these things gave them this aura that you didn't tend to find with the average metal band. 
And yet, listening to them, you wouldn't just hear them as a straight-up punk band. Uh, there was something kind of old-school about their vibe and their sound. It was really like psychedelic hard rock on steroids. Is what you know? I think early Motorhead really sounds like when all is said and done. Eventually, it gets refined, and I think it gets heavier as Lemmy sort of refines his bass sound, puts more distortion on it. You know, it becomes, again, this sort of classic wall of sound. Heavy, heavy, distorted bass, heavy guitars, and just crazy drums from Phil the Animal Taylor. You know, not necessarily the first guy to use the double bass drum setup, but I think he showed the potential of it more than any other rocket drummer of his time. Um, there was, there, it was like a reformulated power trio. Um, and there was something about it that was very elemental. But I think that there was also something about it that was precisely building on the contradictions that were inherent in the ways that both metal and punk had been defined up until that time in a way that was observable. Right. You know, that to me is what's valuable, valuable about being able to go back to an old issue of Sounds magazine and see that Jeff Barton, who's the guy that coined the term new wave of British heavy metal. Right is starting to write about Motorhead as a metal punk crossover band at around the same time. It's like, it's not just that the band had these features, it's that people were actually recognizing them from a very early time. Right. And, um, you know, to kind of speak from my own uh, historical training, I think, it, to me, I mean, first of all, that the blog post uh, aside, um, you know, it wasn't obvious to people in 1981, and that's what you're documenting. Um, but number two, you know, if we think about the context of London and these these... English industrial cities, wouldn't it be even impossible to believe that these musicians wouldn't be hearing each other's bands and sort of talking to each other, even if there is this, if we want to imagine this ideological clash between them um, in some way? I mean, I think it's it's perfectly, I mean, perfectly logical. Um, I'll give you one example from from uh, history that I think about is that in, uh, uh, in when studying early um, – cities in the South in the early 19th century, one of the things that has been documented by historians is how much interaction, whether it be illicit trading, sexual relationships there were between poor blacks and slaves and freed blacks. So, you know, your, maybe your English, uh, excuse me, your American aristocracy wasn't going to be mingling with the slaves down by the docks, but certainly in Savannah, you had this, these, this, these interactions between people who were basically milling in the same social circles even though maybe on the face of it, you would think, well, that probably didn't happen because we want to project back this big barrier between white and black, just like there was this supposed barrier. I mean, I think to me, the fact that you're documenting it is to be commended. But on the other hand, I would, I would, you know, put it on anybody to, I mean, how could you not, you know, see this as crucially important going forward and, and to, uh, I think to see, to see any other outcome would have been surprising to me. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, well, I th and I, you know, that's a really interesting analogy you draw uh, to, you know, 19th century slave culture and, and what you would find in, like, you know, late industrial England in the 70s. And I think, to me, coming back to genre again, right, one of the ideas that I grapple with a lot through different parts of the book, what's fascinating to me about the way the genres work is precisely that they do have a lot of ideological power. And I think that while on the one hand, it's absolutely the case that folks who were in metal and folks who were into punk were coming into contact with each other, were being exposed to the same things, 
to a significant degree, and that all of that was completely inescapable. On the other hand, the fact that there were these genre rules and definitions in place also meant that there was a lot of encouragement to repudiate one or the other side of what right. was happening. And so while it was certainly the case that I think the things that gave rise to crossover were prevalent, um, there were a lot of countervailing factors, which you get a sense of, again, reading interviews with, on the one hand, a band like Judas Priest, who says, oh, yeah, those Sex Pistols, they basically are like playing the kind of stuff that we were playing in the garage when we first started right. out years ago. Right. And on the other hand, you get a rock critic like John Savage, who I think is a brilliant rock critic, one of the best of who's ever laid pen to paper, so to speak, you know, wrote definitive book on the Sex Pistols and British punk. But when he had to review a Judas Priest album, didn't know what the hell to say about it. And basically, like, fell on these totally cliched judgments about mass culture. All the while, trying to figure out why he detected a kind of homoeroticism in the band that (laughs) totally confused him as a gay man writing in the late 70s and being unaware that Rob Helford was, in fact, also gay. Uh, And so you get the sense that, like, yeah, these guys were totally all kind of dwelling in the same basic space and yet they were also being told that like if you were into this you shouldn't be into this and there was stuff that was genuinely incommensurable if you were on one side of that divide and I think that's precisely the difference that a band like Motorhead made was that they were a band I mean this is what you read constantly when you read these reviews of their earliest years their earliest shows in particular is like the the notion that they were a crossover, it wasn't just that they sounded a certain way. It was that they had a certain kind of audience mm-hmm. and right. that you started to see people who looked like punks and people who looked like biker metal guys at Motorhead shows at the same time. That was a change. Right. Like that was observable again. And so uh, to me, that's crucial because that shows how. You know, when you're talking about these things as genres, you also have to talk about how they play out socially. You know, that it's about how audiences relate to them and define themselves in accordance and not just about like, oh, well, this happens to have loud guitar and a solo here, but it's also kind of grungy. So that means it's a crossover. Right. Right. Um, you know, the, the I had one question before we, we close with our, our typical final question about your next project was that um, I was – you know, it's for whatever reason, when I think about crossover between metal and punk, one of the first groups that comes to mind, which maybe for no logical reason at all, really is Anthrax. And I was surprised you didn't mm-hmm. mention that. And, I, and we know as, as scholars, we always make choices about how we have to tell a story. You can't include everything. Um, I was interested. Was there certain bands that you sort of wanted to put to the side for reasons of just trying to um, tell a different sort of story than the one that's sort of stereotypically told by people when they look at these uh, crossover issues? Yeah, I, I mean, definitely those questions about what to include and what not were things I had to grapple with all through the writing and research of this book. And there there were definitely a lot of bits of the book that wound up, you know, being written at some point and then winding up on the cutting room floor. I had a whole in – a, in a completely different part of the book, I had a whole section devoted to the New York Dolls, for instance, that wound up being cut uh, because it just – after editing a bit more, it just didn't seem to fit. Right. Um, Anthrax – I, I, I think I felt, for the most part, that talking about Anthrax wouldn't have necessarily added anything that I wasn't already getting at by talking about some of the other bands that I do talk about. Right. 
Um, and I think I was most drawn to writing about Metallica uh, among the sort of big four of thrash metal bands, partly because I think they were the easiest to find material on. Uh, they were better documented than right. any. And they right. also start, you know, for all that Metallica has now become, I think, something of a scourge to metal fans of a certain type, there's no denying the fact that they were doing the thing that became thrash earlier than anyone else that made a record. Right. <laughs> and to me, that means that they deserve that sort of pride of place. Right. You know, there were definitely places in the book where I went very much against the grain of like, well, I'm not going to talk about this band because they've already been talked about. Right. Some. But I don't think we're there yet with thrash metal. Right. <laughs> you know, so I felt like to me, Metallica fit parts of the story I wanted to tell better than some other bands. I, the other side of that is that they it may it mattered a lot to me that their first uh, their very first track was included on the first Metal Massacre compilation. Right. And that's some. And that's an album I spend a good bit of time talking about. And so, you know, it, a lot of it came down to these guys connect to other parts of the story I want to tell. Anthrax. If I had decided to write about Anthrax more, or if I had decided to write about Megadeth more, I would have told maybe different sides of the story. Right. Uh, but Metal Blade was really crucial for me because Metal Blade for me is the key label on the metal side of the equation where you start to see what crossover means, not just in a genre sense or even just in an audience sense, but also in a business sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Metallic is part of that story. So is Slayer. Yeah. Yeah. There's that great, there you have that great chapter in the book about SST and metal blade. Yeah. That's a really, uh, another, if we had more time. We, I would, I was uh, going to ask you about that, but, um, uh, well, so tell us now in closing, what is on the uh, agenda for you coming up as your next project? Uh, my next real project, like my next book that's going to be like a book, uh, is actually it's it's in some ways an extension of some parts of the metal punk research I did, but it's totally like moving backwards in time. I'm I'm writing what I'm calling a cultural history of American live music, uh, and right now it has the really unimaginative title of "Live Music in America: A History." <laughs> Uh, that that will change. And, I, I can guarantee it. Yeah, I'm good. It'll change. Yeah, for sure. But uh, you know, you need a working title. Sure. So that, but in this case, I'm going back to 1850. Basically, is the starting point. And uh, you know, a lot of what we were talking about with a band like Grand Funk and in, the whole notion of like, so what happens when you get a crowd of a certain size? How does that entail certain things about what an audience is expected to do? What right artist is supposed to do and you know even bigger questions like how does that take shape as a sort of public event of any kind of consequence um, I really become very interested in those kinds of questions in a sort of big picture way and so I wanted to get a sense of like okay so how did we get to arena rock how did we get to some of the different incarnations of live music that we are more familiar with um, and going back into the 19th century it's fascinating to see how, you know, by the middle of the 19th century, you have artists that, like, the first chapter of this new project of mine is devoted to this concert singer, opera singer named Jenny Lind. Right. Uh, you know, who was immensely popular and successful in touring the U.S. in the early 1850s. Right. She was promoted by P.T. Barnum. She became a total cultural sensation. She's, from a modern-day perspective, I think the most unlikely... Uh, 
embodiment of a pop star that we could imagine. Uh, she was very pure in her image. She was kind of homely. Uh, and, you know, and she's saying basically what we would consider to be classical music. And yet in the 1850s, she was a pop star and in arguably the first modern pop star and playing to crowds of several thousand people at a pop in a way that was nearly unprecedented. Um, so I've, I've started basically tracing this history back in time and, and am now working on sort of moving forward with it and, you know, and ultimately planning to work my way back to the arena rock era, but with more historical perspective, maybe ask some questions I wasn't able to ask the first time around. Well, it sounds like a, a great project. And, um, I would just say in closing that, um, I'd urge everyone to, um, pick up this ain't the summer of love conflict and crossover and heavy metal and punk, uh, which came out of university of California press in 2009. It's out in paper. And, uh, I don't know if it's out in Kindle, but, uh, Pick up a paper copy. It'll be good for you. Uh, Steve, thanks a lot for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, Greg. Okay, take care. Yeah. You've been listening to a conversation with Steve Waxman about his book, This Ain't the Summer of Love, Conflict and Crossover in Heavy Metal and Punk, which was published by the University of California Press in 2009. Please check back soon for another episode of New Books and Popular Music or subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss another episode. This is Greg Renoff saying thank you for listening.